Well, we're going to be taking a look at, uh, once again, here at the Gospel of John, this ancient account of the life and person of Jesus Christ. As we look at this uh, text, we're coming to the stage in Jesus' life when it is picking up full speed. Trains are, are let loose, heading towards this terrible crucifixion and death. And yet, John is this writer who, who's more concerned, it seems, than anyone else in portraying for us that there is life, real life, abundant life in Jesus' name. But in order to see that life, we must see that death for what it is. So I invite you to join with me. I'm going to read from John chapter 11. I'm going to start just a couple verses before what's printed in your bulletin, uh, but you will be able to, to follow along as I read. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face unwrapped with a cloth, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that Jesus, what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered, and the council said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having, change, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, 
because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we come to this text, and as we gain insight into the thoughts and the motives and the hearts of those who stood on this earth and saw you in human form, as we enter into the minds of those who were there, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, by your Spirit, awaken our imaginations. Lord, that we would see that while they lived so many years before us, their story is yet so similar to ours. Lord, teach us to see your resurrection as a way that you would have us see through this text. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday was a, uh, a weird experience for me. Right, if you were here with us, we, we read of this story, the story that preceded this one of this man, Lazarus, who died an untimely death. And we, we questioned what it was and where was the love of God in this. And yet what we did not know in that moment was that as we were pondering the weight of death, and life and resurrection, that helicopter in California that carried the famous NBA legend Kobe Bryant and, and eight other peers was starting to lose control, was, was speaking with ground control, trying to find their way in the midst of fog as we told stories of a 40-something-year-old cousin of mine who lost his life. There was a 40-something-year-old in California who is heading towards his death. And you've probably seen it, right? When, when a cultural icon like, the, like this dies, it, it consumes the collective imagination of our culture uh, for days and weeks, sometimes months on end. And so everywhere imaginable that they could put Kobe's jersey number eight or 24, it's been put up, right? Every game, uh, basketball game from Little Leagues to the NBA has marked this passing and this tragic loss of life. And last week, Whitney and I had, had dinner out. We escaped from our kids, and we were contemplating on this moment uh, and, and this, this fascination, right? This grieving process that our society does at a death like this because it's a little bit strange, right? Like I'd venture to guess, like none of us have probably ever met Kobe Bryant. Right? None of us, uh, very few of us have probably even seen him in person, if shorter than, you know, like 20 feet away, right? Like none of us really know him, and yet it grieves us so. And so I was asking Whitney what she thought of this, because uh, she's smarter and, and wiser than I. Um, and she, you all knew that already. Uh, but she said, you know, I think, I think it's that we want to believe that there is someone who's bigger than death. We want to believe, we know that, that we are bound and tied by death. We're very aware of the limitations of our body. But when you look at somebody like Kobe Bryant, who's so strong, he's so powerful, right? His, his very uh, reputation is built that he can overcome any obstacle, any adversary that gets in his way. He is the achiever, right? He's a larger-than-life figure. And something in us wants to believe she said that, that there's, 
that, that there's somebody out there who can beat death, that there's somebody out there who's strong enough, powerful enough to get away from it. I think her explanation is probably as good as any. In this text, though, we come across uh, uh, this moment in Jesus' life, and he's done a lot of miraculous things in the witness of people. All right, But it was at this moment when the, the gospel writers tell us that he called a dead man in his tomb to come out, and the dead man found legs and life again. It was in this moment that Jesus shows himself to be not just a powerful man, not just one sent from God, but one who is greater than death. And so as we look at this passage in the, these paragraphs that immediately follow, I want us to look at the people, the characters of the story, but people who lived in time and place as they watched and as they reacted to this miracle, to this witness, to this testimony that there was indeed one who walked on earth who was bigger than life and greater than death. I'll give you a hint, though. They don't all respond quite the way we think they will. The first we'll come across here in our text is Caiaphas, right? Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, uh, Caiaphas, the high priest who sees Jesus rise from the dead, or rather he hears the account of him, but his response to his conception of what just happened and how it affected him was to clench his fist. See, Caiaphas was convinced that the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ was a threat to his power. You can see it here in the text. And immediately as the news trickles its way back into Jerusalem, there's an there's emergency council meeting. The, the, the high priest and, and the chief priests along with him gather together as they contemplate and reflect, what are we going to do? This great deed that Jesus has done is, is surely above and beyond any other. How can we stop the people from flocking to him? How can we put down the notion that a Messiah is in our midst? Because if word gets out, if the Romans hear that a Messiah is afoot, if the people start to gather in force, then the Romans will come and they will quash us. The power that we've gained, the, 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 the autonomy that we have from the Roman Empire, our freedom to worship as we wish is about to come crashing down. Caiaphas, though, has the answer. Caiaphas looks at the situation and he, he says, what, what's wrong with you guys? Isn't the answer clear? We're here is this man who has cheated death. He must now be put to death. Isn't it better for one man to die than for the whole nation to be afflicted? Isn't it better to, to, to lose the one life than to have the loss of many life? Resurrection is a threat to the powers that be. It's ludicrous, right? It's, it's illogical. It's crazy talk. And yet it's the kind of thing that we do all the time. You see, as we look at our lives in this world, and as we look at them specifically unaware of a resurrection that is yet to come, we're prone to believe that the powers that be are the powers that are. That the powers that we see in this world is all that we have. That this world as we know it 
is all that we have. And so we are marked more with the tendency to, to, to swear allegiance to untruth, to acts of uh, rebellion, to acts of hatred, to acts of violence than we are to confront that maybe our powers aren't really what they ought to be. A few months ago, I was reading a, a study uh, that was notating this seemingly unshakable uh, support for President Trump that he gets from the, the evangelical church at large, right? I can see the panic, your eyes getting really big here, right? Uh, I, I, I don't really have much to say about impeachment or whether uh, the, what he's done is worthy of it, but, I, but there's something in this article that I want us to focus on because it focuses on the hearts and minds of Christians, of those who have been marked by the resurrection. And in this, in this report, it was discussing this uh, survey that was done several months ago, even before all of this broke out. And it was, it was asking this question, right, of, of who do you support, right? Why do you support them, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the questions on there is, is there anything that President Trump could do that would make, you lose, make him lose your support? Is there anything that President Trump could do to which you would cease supporting him. And according to the survey writers, a majority of those who self-identified as evangelicals said no. No, there's nothing he could do that would make him lose my support. I want you to understand how crazy of a sentence that is, right? Like that is a loyalty don't you dare ever put on me, right? That is a loyalty, like let's just, okay. Okay, like President Trump, let's just talk about how crazy this is, right? President Trump stands up and he swears allegiance to Satan, right? That fits under the category of, any, well, is there anything he could do, right? Uh, I think most of us, right, would say, yeah, that's probably a breaking point, right? President Trump streaks across the White House lawn, right? Not saying he's going to do it, but he could, right? President Obama drops a nuclear bomb on Canada, Right? It's a good time to maybe say, eh, I might withdraw my support now. Right? There's, if you know anything of human nature, if you know anything of, of life in this world, you know that there are a million different things that are so atrocious and so scary and so frightening that you ought to pull your support from anyone who does them. Right? We don't have to go to the far-fetched reasons how ludicrous of a statement it is. Is there anything that he could do that would make you lose your support? Well, gosh darn, there is. But yet a majority of those polled said no. A majority of those said no, and, and in the, the survey, they, uh, they tried to wrestle with this idea, and they're asking, and they, their, their conclusion was is that these supporters of President Trump were so committed to him not necessarily because of who he was, but because they feared that if they lost President Trump, that they would lose their nation. If they lost President Trump, they would lose life as they knew it to the other side. If they lost President Trump, they would lose all power and all bargaining. If they lost President Trump, they had a death of a nation to fear. By the way, if you are watching the impeachment, you see that the fears of the death of the nation go both ways, right? 
If you watch the impeachment, you will see people on both sides saying that, that this is a constitutional crisis, that life as we know it in America is about to end if we don't convict or if we don't acquit. That the fear of the loss of the nation drives people, but the resurrection, the resurrection tells us first and foremost that there is nothing to fear in death. The resurrection tells us that we ought to be willing to die to the powers of this world. So we're a people who could dare to be wrong. We're a people who could dare to be corrected. We're a people who could dare to face tribulation and sorrow because what's more important than death of a nation is the truth of God's world. What's more important than the death of a nation is life in Jesus' name. What's more important than the powers of Washington, D.C., is the life of Christ's church. Those are not sacrifices that we ought to make. And yet many of us, like Caiaphas, clench our fists at those words. We clench our fists because this world is what all we think we have. We clench our fists because we think the resurrection threatens our power. But it's not just Caiaphas, right? We see in this story a little bit later on this man Judas, right? A Judas who we know is almost like a swear word, right? He's the, the, uh, the, the Benedict Arnold. He's the one who betrays Jesus over to the authorities at the end of, of this narrative. He is the one who, who will trade in and cash out. But at this point in time, Judas is just one of the disciples, one of those who's closest to Jesus. But Judas responds to the resurrection we see in this, not with clenched fists, but, but, but with the hands out, right? Looking and ready for, for what could be put in the palm of his hands. You see, for Judas, the resurrection is an opportunity for power. Not, the opportunity, not a threat to his power, but an opportunity for power. We find him here in a very different sort of gathering than the council meeting. Here he's at a dinner table. And at the dinner table sits Lazarus, this man who has been raised from the dead. And as Judas sits there in the company of Jesus and Lazarus, presumably other disciples and perhaps other friends, he sits there and he watches as this woman Mary the sister of Lazarus enters into the room with this incredibly valuable ointment. And Judas, seeing this ointment and, and knowing what it was, immediately starts doing, doing the math in his head, right? In his head, he's thinking, well, that's got to be worth 300 denarii. That's got to be worth, that's the equivalent of a day's wage in, in, in that ancient time, right? So if you want to start doing the math yourself, you can. It's about a year's worth of work, a year's worth of work that must be worked in order to afford this one thing of ointment. The cost is extravagant. And so Judas does the math and he figures, you know, being a sidekick to the resurrection and the life, maybe this could be a pretty lucrative deal. Text tells us here in one moment. The text tells us here in verse 5, uh, as, he, as he makes his case, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, Judah sat next to Jesus, and, and he could see that Mary may not be the last of the people who come and bring gifts to Jesus if he could leverage his position his power, his proximity to Jesus, then Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus could bring him great power, power in the terms of dollars and cents. But he doesn't just wield the power seeking money, he wields the power of proximity to Jesus, right? He says in verse 5, not like, hey, why don't you just give me that money? He says, well, hook, wouldn't it be better if we gave all this money to the poor? See, Judas understood that there's a power of being close to Jesus, the power of being able to speak in his name. He knew he wielded weapons of guilt and manipulation over the people that would come. He knew that being one of Jesus' confidants gave him the chance not just to enrich himself, but to control and manipulate others. I'm afraid you've known others who have fit this mold. Others who maybe wore a robe like I wear. Maybe they were uh, your mother or father. Maybe they were the, 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 the preacher who stood out on the corner condemning everyone to hell but himself. Those who use their proximity and their knowledge of Jesus to leverage an emotional response that gave them something. The news stories are filled with unspeakable evils that clergy have done. We've uh, uh, known and, and are sarcastic towards these uh, preachers who have gained vast amounts of wealth through their flexing of powers, through manipulating the power of the resurrection for their own self. But more often than not, and far more common, is those who make you feel ignorant and stupid at what you don't know. Those who, who berate you for your sin because it makes them feel like they're in control of themselves. Those who, who tell you you are wrong so that they can feel like they're right. Maybe you've had that experience in church before. But I hope what you see in this text is just how alienating that is. How unlike and unfamiliar, how uh, how blasphemous it is that such things exist in the shadow of the resurrection because the shadow of the resurrection tells us that we must be willing to die to the powers of this world because there is life on the other side of death far from being a weapon to wield the church of jesus christ the proximity to jesus ought to lead us to be a people not who manipulate to gain control but who freely offer it up. Which brings us to Mary. Mary, this woman who, uh, relative to these other men to which we have just spoken, carries almost no power at all. A woman in their society, and most scholars think that she's more than likely a single woman by the fact that, that no husband is mentioned in the text. A woman who has just her siblings and who has just seen just how Quickly, their family can be taken away. A woman who, whether she knew it or not, belonged to a family whose primary bedwinner was, had a target painted on his back, right? You saw the end of the text as the authorities decided, well, we needed to take off Jesus, but we also need to take out Lazarus. 
She was a woman whose future in terms of the powers of this world looked extremely dim. But when Mary comes to Jesus, when Mary looks at the resurrection, she does not come with hands that are clenched. She does not come with hands that are looking for a handout. She comes with hands that are clinging to the feet of Jesus. You see, what Mary's hope for the future Mary's hope for the future if her brother Lazarus is dead is very slim. She has nothing but the dignity of her name and whatever wealth she happens to have already in her possession. She can't go make a future year's salary. And yet, Mary, when she looks at the resurrection, says, my power is his. And she comes to Jesus and she takes what could have been a very nice social security check in her hand and she breaks it and she pours the ointment. More than likely not just on his feet but starting with his head and his body and to his feet. This woman who has no nothing but the goodness of her name lets her hair out. A sign in the, in the society that she was loose with her morals. She was a woman to be avoided. She, in the middle of polite company, degraded herself. Let the rumors swirl around about her because she needed a towel to wipe the Savior's feet. See, Mary, while she had very little power, looked at the resurrection and said, there is one who is worthy of whatever power I have. It's not a threat. It's not a means to an end. It is worthy of my life. And so she spent, and she spent extravagantly. As she is in, in uh, the modified words here of a, of a martyr, one who... Uh, looks and while the world looks at her as a fool for what she worships and the way she worships and the way she pours out the powers of this world out onto the ground in front of her, she is no fool who gives what she cannot keep to gain what she cannot lose, what she cannot earn because she's not interested in the powers of this world. She's interested in the power of the resurrection. If you're here, and, and, and many of us trying to figure out what does this mean? What does it mean to not do politics confined and, and, and framed by the powers of this world? What does it mean uh, to do church where we don't need to be thought of as being pristine and perfect but redeemed and loved? What does it mean to live life where we feel like we don't need the protections of the powers that be, but the protection of the one who raised Lazarus from the death. See, Mary's hands clung to the feet of Jesus because this world was no longer enough for her. But the last person, the last person I want us to look at this morning is the person of Jesus Christ, who came not with clenched fist to hold on to what was his or with palms out to, to, to be greased with the giving of others, who didn't come so much even with the, the clinging to the feet that Mary did, but he came with hands outstretched because he knows that the power to bring resurrection is the power to bring new life. One uh, commenter, commenter on this text 
says that Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb to raise him from the dead, and he is not at all confused as to what's going to happen. Long before Caiaphas comes up with this plan, Jesus has his own. The commenter says, the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself into the grave. He knew the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to summon his own funeral. And so when Caiaphas comes up with this plan that Jesus ought to lay down his life so that the nation could thrive, John, the writer of this text, says, you know what? He was right. He says, John tells us, but he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, Jesus knew that he contained the spirit of the living God, the spirit of the living God that had the power to raise from the dead. And Jesus, holding on to such power, did not consider keeping it to himself, but he said, through death, I might give it to others. Jesus, looking at the people, Jesus looking at the need, Jesus longing that life could be set free, said, I do not need the powers of this world for their death to me. Jesus dies to the powers of this world. Jesus dies by the powers of this world. Jesus dies because he wants us to find life. Because he knows that in him is a life that is, is not protected by the powers of this world, but is protected by the life that is in him. In, in resurrection is the life that he promised us is life, and but life that is more abundant. In him is a life that operates not according to the whims and the desires of evil men, but according to the power that is at work in the heavenly realms. That there is a life that is to be had. And so Jesus takes his power and he allows his hands to be stretched out on a cross because by his one death, he indeed desires to bring us all life. And not just the folks in this room, but to the furthest corners of the world, the promise that there is life that is not needed by the powers of this world. You know, it's been interesting over the week as, as all of the, the, the memorials and the commenters on uh, Kobe Bryant spill out, and maybe I just follow too many sports accounts on Instagram, okay? But I've seen almost nothing but this for the whole week, and, and the admonitions of watching this great man die have, have led to all sorts of, of encouragements and commands given by the commenters, right? To, I've been urged to hug my kids and my loved ones close, for you never know the day that'll come. It says, don't hold grudges and arguments. Uh, don't make amends with those who you have wronged or those who you are in a fight with, because you never know when the day is coming. It can be over so quickly. I've heard admonitions to live generously like Kobe, to work hard in the things that matter like Kobe, to live fearlessly like Kobe. All things, by the way, I think are great ideas. But if the, the, the death of a cultural icon, if the death of a cultural icon can, can inspire folks even for a minute to think, you know what, the powers of this world aren't worth it. 
The powers of this world aren't worth it because you never know when your life is to be over. If the death of someone, the fleetingness of life can inspire that even for a moment, how much more those of us who have seen a resurrection from the dead? How much more can we put aside and die to the powers of this world to take up the life of Christ? If the death of Kobe causes us to reevaluate our sense of power because it's so fragile, how much more so can the life of Jesus convince your heart of the same? How much more permanently can the life of Jesus convince your heart that this world is not worth dying for? There is one who is greater to death than death, John tells us. John tells us in his elderly age because he knows that it is that knowledge that brings us life. There is one who is greater than death, one who has no use for the powers of this world because he is dead to the powers of the world. He is Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. Pray with me. Father, we come to this text and we confess, Lord, that, that we are people prone to look at the world and be envious of its powers, manipulation, guilt, misdirection, and lies. We envy those who seem to profit from sin for this season. And yet, Lord, you have shown us that your resurrection leads us to a fuller and more beautiful life than we could ever dare dream, that it is in your resurrection that life can be had. Father, convince our hearts of this truth this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.